astropsychologist from Columbus, Ohio. And in 2019, he became something of a celebrity when he correctly picked every winner of March Madness all the way to the Sweet 16 game. Now, in case you're not sure how many games that is, he correctly picked 49 games in a row. And the game that busted his bracket was when he chose Tennessee to beat Purdue, and they lost in overtime. 68 teams play 67 games in seven rounds of a single elimination tournament for the national championship. And so far, no one has ever filled out a perfect bracket. They won't this year either because last night when Maryland beat UConn, all the remaining eight perfect brackets were busted as well. You see, the best we can do as we look towards the future, even a basketball game, the best we can do is just guess. Now, sometimes you can guess by like flipping a coin. That's one way to do it. I know my son filled out a bracket that way. Just flip the coin and determine who the winner would be. And that's, you know, that's a legitimate way to do it, except I found out as I did a little research, if you flip a coin and try to determine the winner of all 67 games, uh, the chances of predicting the winner in every game, 67 games, by coin flip is said to be 1 in 9.2 quintillion. I didn't even know what a quintillion was, and so I had to look it up, and a quintillion is 1 billion billions. Now, to help you have the little bit perspective of that, uh, there are seven, and I don't know who counts this or estimates this, but researchers in Hawaii said that they've determined there's about 7.5 quintillion grains of sand on planet earth and yet your chances of picking the winner is one in 9.2 quintillion so whether you you base your choices on the mascot or the team colors or if you get a little more scientific and look at the the uh, schedule or the winning percentage or whatever it's still just a guess right we don't have the ability to look into the future it's still just a guess in the brackets of in the brackets of life, it's still just a guess too. Just like the brackets in basketball, none of us are perfect. None of us get it perfect. None of us do. If it's so hard to predict the outcome of a basketball game in the week of the games, imagine how hard it would be, how difficult it would, do, it would be to predict the actual events in the life of a person born six or seven hundred years I mean, you predict it six or seven hundred years before they were born. That's really the background of our text today in Luke chapter 18. Uh, today we begin a new series called Fulfilled. And it's the final series as we work our way through the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus predicts something and it's not a guess. He's predicting what's going to happen in the future and it's based on something the Father predicted long, long ago. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31. Let me give you the background to the text as you're finding that verse. Jesus in this text is on His way up to Jerusalem with His disciples. They've been to Jerusalem several times over the years. But this is His final trip to that city. He knows what lies ahead of Him. And he wants to prepare his followers for what they are going to experience and what they're going to encounter. 
So for the third time in his ministry, Jesus tries to explain to his followers what is about to happen on this final trip to Jerusalem. Verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be, what's that last word? Fulfilled. Look at the text carefully with me one more time. We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. William Barclay, the great Bible scholar, said that there are two kinds of courage. He says, first of all, there, there is the heroic action on the spur of the moment. That is, you're, you're confronted with some kind of crisis or some kind of emergency, and you're motivated to take action at that spur of the moment. He said, that's a tremendous kind of courage. He said, but there is a greater courage than even that, and that is the courage of a man who sees what lies ahead, weeks ahead, months ahead, maybe years ahead, but he sees what lies ahead, a terrible situation looming ahead, and he steadfastly walks toward it rather than trying to avoid it. That was the courage that Jesus exhibited in Luke chapter 18. Let's continue to read the text. He says again in verse 31, We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Verse 32, He will be handed over to the Gentiles and they will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. But that won't be the end of it. Because on the third day, He will rise again. Jesus understood as He was walking towards Jerusalem on that final trip, he understood that every step towards Jerusalem was a step closer to the cross. And the courage that it took to willingly, knowingly, resolutely walk to Jerusalem was extraordinary. And you need to understand that many of Jesus' previous trips to Jerusalem did not end very well. I told you a moment ago, he had taken several trips to, to Jerusalem, and a lot of them did not end very well. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In the month of October, he went to the Feast of Booths. John 7 tells us about that. We don't have time to turn there, but in John 7, John, in his gospel account, tells us about Jesus going to uh, Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. And it did not end well because in chapter 8, verse 59, John summarized it this way. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple crowds. He had made the Pharisees and the religious leaders so angry that they picked up stones and they wanted to kill him. And they tried to stone him. That trip did not end very well. Then we continue to read through John. And we see that a few months later, that was in October, in December, he comes back to Jerusalem. He returned to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. We also call it Hanukkah. John chapter 10 talks about, about that. And again, they tried to pick up stones to stone him. And John ends the, the story this way. Again, they tried to seize him but he escaped their grasp. John chapter 11, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick and he decides to go be with him. And the disciples object. and They say this, they said, Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, yet you're going to go back there? And he not only went back there, but 
he went to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that added fuel to the fire when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And John, in writing this story, in chapter 11, verse 53 says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Here's my point. Even on a typical day, uh, just going to Jerusalem was a dangerous venture for Jesus. Just even on a typical day, going to Jerusalem was a dangerous thing for Jesus. But this, this was not a typical day. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. We're going to read this verse several times because I really want it to sink in. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. To really understand what Jesus did and why Jesus did it, we need to focus on a key word, and the key word is that word at the end of verse 31. Look at the screen. It is the word fulfilled. That is such an important word. The Greek word is teleo, and it means to carry carry an action to its very end. Uh, Teleo means to finish something completely. It's the idea that if you were going to fill a cup of water or a glass of water, you would fill it to the very top till you can't fill it anymore. That's the word teleo. To fill something to complete, uh, to completely. Uh, to finish something completely. When something is, in Scripture is fulfilled, it means that there is nothing left undone. Make sure you hear that. So when you fulfill something in Scripture, there is nothing left undone. And so Jesus said on this final journey, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Nothing will be left undone. So what was going to be fulfilled? It's a very good question. What was going to be fulfilled? I've got two points for you today and here's the first one. Jesus fulfilled God's sovereign plan. Luke was saying, what is about to occur is part of a much bigger plan. He was trying, Jesus was trying to help his disciples understand what you're about to experience is part of a much bigger plan. In fact, what happened to Jesus was a sovereign plan and it was even an eternal plan. I like in verse 31 the way that it is worded. Everything that is written by the prophets, that is in the Old Testament, Everything that is written by the prophets in the Old Testament about the Son of Man in the New Testament times will be teleo, will be fulfilled. Nothing will be left undone. In other words, everything that the Old Testament prophets wrote about Jesus, Jesus said on this final trip to Jerusalem, it will all be fulfilled. The Living Bible translates the verse this way. All the predictions of the ancient prophets concerning me will come true. Now when the disciples heard that, I wonder if their minds didn't go back to when Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth, his hometown. It's, Luke tells us about that. If you want to go back to Luke chapter 4, we can read that real quickly. Because Jesus used this same word, teleo, in his hometown, in the synagogue, as he began his ministry. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 
16. He went to Nazareth. This is as he was beginning his ministry. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. He was the guest there. He stood up to read the scriptures. Imagine, look up here for a moment. Look at this pulpit. He he, he comes up to the pulpit if you will. The platform. He stands up to read. And they hand him a scroll, an Old Testament scroll of the book of Isaiah. That's what it says in the next verse. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now watch this. So he's unrolling this scroll, and he's looking, and he's looking, and he's looking, and then his finger finds the spot. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And then he reads these words from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was reading from the book of Isaiah. And then, then he rolled up the scroll, verse 20. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is teleo, is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said in six or seven hundred years ago, what he wrote down, Six or seven hundred years ago. Today is the fulfillment of what he said. Now hear me and hear me well. Those watching online, I'm so glad you turned, turned in and tuned in. But I want you to hear this. This is so important. The theme of the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. You should not be surprised that Isaiah spoke about Jesus. Because from the beginning to the end, the Bible reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, the Bible is a story that fits together to reveal the glory of who Jesus Christ is. One day Jesus was talking to some of His enemies, those that were opposed to His ministry, and they didn't believe what He was saying. They questioned His authority. They questioned everything that He said. And Jesus responded to them this way in John 5.46. Jesus said, If you believed Moses, Old Testament, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Isn't that interesting? It's as if Jesus said, hey, do you all ever read your Bible? You ever read the Old Testament? You ever read Moses? You ever read what Moses wrote? Do you understand that when Moses was writing what he wrote, he was writing about me? By some counts, there are more than 300 Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus that he fulfilled during his life on earth. I have on my desk right now an 11-page document printed out with 300, I think, and 50 different Old Testament prophecies written in the days of the Old Testament pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And he fulfilled every one of those prophecies. These include prophecies about his unique birth, like Isaiah 7.14, his earthly ministry, Isaiah 61.6, even the way that he would die, Psalm 22. He 
You see, what you and I need to understand, what we need to have a firm understanding of is this. Jesus Christ is the theme of both the Old and the New Testaments. Some people have wrongly believed that that there is an angry God in the Old Testament and a loving God in the New Testament. That the angry God in the Old Testament kind of got over it and He provided Jesus in the New Testament. That is not true. That is not what happened. Here's the theme of the Old and the New Testament. The theme of both is the Lord Jesus Christ. If I could put it to you this way, in reality, Jesus is the reason for the Bible. He is the living word that the written word spoke about. Someone said the Bible is long and layered for a reason. It prepares us to see and receive Jesus as the only solution to our problem and the only Savior for our sin. As Jesus walked toward Jerusalem, on that final trip, He understood that He was about to fulfill God's sovereign plan. He understood that He was not going to Jerusalem to be crowned as a king. He was going to Jerusalem to be crucified, and He knew it. And he explained it to the disciples. Look at the text again, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, look what he said. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets in the Old Testament about the Son of Man will be teleo, will be fulfilled completely. Nothing will be left undone. And then he describes what's going to happen. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. Who's going to hand him over? The Jews are. Their method of execution was always through stoning. They did not have the legal right, however, to stone Jesus. They had no real grounds for doing that. And so they convinced the Romans that Jesus was a threat to Caesar. That was the reason he was arrested. That was the reason he was tried. He was a threat to Caesar. And so Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in Jerusalem. They will hand me over to the Gentiles. That is, to the Romans. And look what's going to happen. And notice how he speaks very specifically. It's amazing. He says, He'll be handed over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. We're going to be looking at what Jesus did over the next two Sundays, so I don't want to take too much time there, except I want to summarize what I've said thus far with this statement. Our salvation was determined by a sovereign God, and our salvation was purchased by a loving Savior. But I told you I had two points. Here's the second point. We struggle to fully understand what God has done and is doing. Can I get a witness? Anybody ever struggle to understand what God has done or is doing? Look at verse 34. It it is amazing. Verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. (laughs) Here's Jesus. He's taking the time to lay out for them. Everything's going to happen. He's taking the time to explain to them. Now everything that's written in your Old Testaments, all those things that the prophets wrote about, I'm going to be fulfilling that, and they will come to fulfillment on this trip. And he explains it all to them. And, and it says here, 
very specifically. The disciples did not understand any of this. And then Luke adds a second layer. The meaning was hidden from them. Then he adds a third layer. They did not know what he was talking about. So if you look up in the dictionary the word clueless, their picture should be right there beside that word. Absolutely. In fact, let me tell you how clueless they were. Matthew and Mark says, in their gospel account of this, Matthew and Mark says that after he got through explaining everything that was going to happen, James and John came to him and said, Hey, hey, when you set up your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and one on your left? Absolutely clueless. And I was thinking this week, it's so easy for us to kind of judge the twelve for being so clueless. As we enjoy our vantage point beyond the resurrection. Let me explain it to you this way. Let's say that this pulpit represents the cross and the resurrection. If this pulpit represents that time frame in the Lord's life, those three days, His arrest, His trial, His crucifixion, His resurrection. If that's what this pulpit represents, you and I look back at that event with wonder and appreciation. We marvel at what God did. We marvel at how much God loves us that His one and only Son would be sent as a sacrifice for our sins. We look back on that event with wonder and appreciation. But the disciples did not have that perspective. The disciples looked at that event before it happened. They didn't have the advantage of looking back. They were looking forward. And as they were looking forward and Jesus said, let me tell you what's going to happen on this trip to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be arrested, He'll be spit upon, He'll be mocked, He'll be crucified. As they heard that, Luke goes on to explain to us, but they didn't understand a word He was saying. None of that made sense to them. Do you know why? Because they're looking at it from this perspective, before it happened. And in their mind, they could not comprehend how Messiah would be crucified. How Messiah? They had finally found the Messiah. They had finally found the one they believed would be the conqueror of Rome. They had finally found the one they believed would lead them to freedom. Their Messiah was before them. And their Messiah was trying to explain, on this final trip to Jerusalem, it's going to end really bad and I'm going to be crucified. And as they stood there hearing this, they're trying to comprehend it. And it made absolutely no sense to them that the Messiah would be killed. Not after all that they had done and been through and they'd watched him teach, they'd watched him perform miracles, Messiah would be killed. That made no sense. Then Luke helps us because Luke says there's a bigger issue at stake here. It's not just that the disciples were not paying attention. There's a bigger issue at stake here. Luke describes it this way. Luke says its meaning was hidden from them. So it's, it's not just that as they were walking with Jesus and he explains what's going to happen, it's not just that they weren't paying attention or that they're, they're kind of slow to understand. No, Luke says it was more than that. Luke says the, the bigger problem is this. The meaning was hidden from them, which raises the question, who's hiding it from them? And Why? I think the answer is this. God was hiding it from them. As Jesus was explaining on that final trip what was going to happen to him, the Bible says 
it was hidden from them, and I believe God was behind that. But that brings us to that why question, doesn't it? Why would Jesus tell them what was going to happen if God was hiding the meaning of it from them? And I think there's two scriptural answers I can give you. The first one is this. I really believe that had they fully understood what was happening, what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem, there is a very good likelihood, if they fully understood and comprehended what was about to happen, that they would have tried to stop him or defend him. I base that on Scripture. Do you remember the first time in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus explains to them for the very first time, hey guys, I'm heading towards the cross and, and this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And when they heard that, the Bible says in Matthew 16 that Peter said defiantly, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Peter got reprimanded by Jesus. Peter said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have, you're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So even though Jesus explains to them what's going to happen on this trip to Jerusalem and how he will fulfill everything that the Old Testament prophets have written about, God hid them from understanding that. It was hidden from them. that They couldn't comprehend. Perhaps because they would try to stop him or to defend him. And again, let me give you another scripture to show you what I'm talking about. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, one of the soldiers, maybe Peter, one of the soldiers, grabbed a sword and started swinging it. And it cut off the right ear of one of the servants. I think he was aiming for his head and he just happened to grab his ear. They had this tendency, didn't they? We will defend him to the death if we need to. Disciples didn't know what Jesus was talking about because God hid it from them. Otherwise, they very likely would have tried to stop him or to defend him. So, that brings us to one final really big question. So, why say anything? Why not just let them find out when they get there? Why say anything? And here's the second answer to that question. I think Jesus took them aside and told them what was about to happen because... Later, after the resurrection, they would understand that his suffering was part of God's sovereign plan. On this side of the cross and the resurrection, they could not comprehend all that Jesus was saying. But later, when they got to the other side, when they could look back with wonder and amazement, of how God raised him from the dead. Then they could remember what Jesus said on the way to Jerusalem. Then the pieces of the puzzle would fit. Then they would understand no one took his life from him. He gave his life as a sacrifice. So he tells them ahead of time what they will only understand later because he wants them to know I am willingly surrendering my life for the sins of the world. See, it was not, watch this, it was not until they came face to face with the risen Christ that what he said on the way to Jerusalem finally made sense. It finally made sense. Let me show you this and how these guys learned that lesson. We don't have time to dig into this, but let's read a little bit of it. Uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 
Peter is preaching at Pentecost. This is the very first sermon after the resurrection. The very first sermon that Peter's ever preached. And guess what he's talking about? Look up here for a moment. Guess what he's talking about? This is after the, resur- after the cross, after the resurrection. Peter preaches his first sermon. And guess what he's talking about? He's talking about what Jesus taught them on the way to Jerusalem. He's talking about this new perspective, this new understanding that he has. That Jesus was fulfilling everything written in the Old Testament. Let me show you this in the Bible. Look in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. In other words, we're here in the city of Jerusalem. All of you know who Jesus is, and you know the miracles that he performed and how God validated his message by the miracles he performed. This man, verse 23, was handed over to you. There's that phrase that we saw earlier. This man was handed over to you. Watch this. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. He understood now, didn't he? That the crucifixion was not an accident. The crucifixion was not something that Jesus got swept up in. It was not just because there's a a mob of angry people. Peter said, let me explain something to you that there was a day I didn't understand. But now, after the resurrection, I now understand. Now let me tell you something. Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God was behind it all. Then he goes on to say it this way. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You had a hand in this. You nailed him to the cross. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Everybody look up here. On this side of the crucifixion and the resurrection, he didn't understand that. But when he got to the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection, he suddenly began to understand it was impossible for death to hold him. And then he does something very interesting. Peter points back to the Old Testament. Points back to David. Something that David wrote in the Old Testament. Look what he says. Verse 25. David said about him, about Jesus. David in the Old Testament wrote these words about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. And I will not be shaken. And then he goes on to, to explain. He, he writes out what David wrote in the Old Testament. What David wrote in Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11. Peter points back to Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11. said, you know when David wrote those words? He was writing about Jesus. Brothers, verse 29, I tell you with confidence. I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a, he was a what church? prophet. He was a prophet. He wasn't just a king. He was a prophet because he spoke about Jesus. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. He wrote in the Old Testament about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying. 
Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of this. What's that last word? We're all witnesses of this fact. I love that. That's marked in my Bible. And then verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. On this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, Peter had a perspective of David's words that he did not have over there. And now, because he better understood that Jesus was fulfilling everything written in the Old Testament, Jesus was boldly declaring, this is what God has done for you. So if you ever wonder how much God loves you, if you ever wonder if God really wants you and His eternal family, can I say to you, God's been working towards your salvation since at least the days of the Old Testament. Remember the story of Abraham? Abraham about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Isaac asked the question, Dad, where is the lamb we're going to sacrifice? Abraham said, Son, God Himself will provide a lamb. Those words were not just about what was happening that day. Those words were also a prophecy of what God would one day do for us. That God himself would provide a lamb. You see, everything we believe about Easter and everything we celebrate about Easter was the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. That's how much he desperately wants you in, your, in his eternal family. That's what he has done to make a way for you to know Him. That's what He has done so that your sins can be eternally forgiven. God's been preparing for this day since the days of the Old Testament. As the prophets were writing out the Old Testament, God was leading them to write what they wrote. And as they wrote it down, they didn't perhaps always realize it, but they were talking about Jesus. God has a sovereign plan. Jesus was not just swept up in something when he went to Jerusalem that time. The disciples understood clearly after the resurrection. He didn't lose his life. He gave it to be our sacrifice for our sin. Pray with me about that. Those of you that are here as well as those that are watching online, could I ask you a very personal question? Do you truly know the Lord Jesus? You might be a religious person. You might be pretty faithful to attend church. But do you really truly know the Lord Jesus? See, God so desperately wants to work in your life that He's been working on that plan since the days of the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled everything God planned. So that you would have this opportunity this morning to place your faith in Christ. You want to know how desperate you and I really are? We are so desperate that there was absolutely no way that we could deal with our sin. There was no way we could remove the stain of our sin. There was no way that we could ever undo what we have done. So God sovereignly 
lovingly provided a sacrifice for your sins. And that sacrifice is named Jesus. You can today declare your faith in him. You can today say, I, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, I now believe. I now am filled with wonder and amazement that God would so purposely, providentially, do that for me. Would you pray with me this prayer if you've never trusted Christ as Savior? If you're watching online, would you pray this prayer with me? You can pray it just out loud or you can pray it silently right where you are. The main thing is that you pray it from your heart. Something like this, Lord Jesus, today I, I acknowledge that I am indeed a sinner. And I know that I need you to forgive me of my sin. And I'm grateful that you've made a way for me to be forgiven. For me to have a new start in life. Today I ask Jesus to come into my heart. And I surrender my life to him. Today. I declare that Jesus is my Lord. And I'm trusting only in Him and what He did for me on the cross. Thank you for saving me and for changing me. In Jesus' name, amen.